Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Ken Sanders has led a long and distinguished career holding leadership positions at several iconic firms, including ZGF and Gensler. Since retiring in 2018, Ken continues to support the industry by serving on various boards, teaching at Design Intelligence Learning, and most recently, authoring the book Voices of Design Leadership. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he shares what led him to architecture and the career path that followed, the role of culture in hybrid work environments, and why it's important to build a firm that reflects the mosaic of the world. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Ken Sanders, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. Thank you so much for having me. Ken, you and I have known each other for about a decade, mostly through the Design Futures Council, but there's a whole lot more that you've done throughout your career. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you originally to become an architect and what your career path looked like. Sure, Bob. Thanks. I mean, for me, and this isn't true of many architects, but for me, I knew I wanted to be an architect when I was about 12 years old. And I remember very distinctly my father, who worked for a high-tech measurement company that made manufacturing equipment, he brought home one summer some wooden crates for me. And at the same time, we had taken up a bunch of bricks out of our backyard that used to be paved, and we replaced it with a lawn. And I spent a lot of that summer building forts and structures inside of our garage. And I'm always grateful to my parents for letting me occupy the garage that summer. Built staircases, hidden chambers, forts, all kinds of stuff. And I really, frankly, fell in love with just creating spaces and, you know, designing three-dimensional puzzles that people occupied and traveled through. So for me, it came very early. Uh, Took drafting in high school, focused on that in college. and and then uh, started working once I graduated. So what what were your first few jobs and and how did that lead to the other firms that you worked at? Well, I, I was extraordinarily lucky. I actually graduated from UC Berkeley in 1980 and because I'd taken some summer classes and some advanced courses, I got out one quarter early. So that gave me a head start in the job market. So I went out and started looking for a job. And one of the ads that I read about was from EHDD, it's Joe Eschrick's firm in San Francisco, and they're still around. And they were looking for a model builder. And I thought, well, I know how to build models. And actually, I like Joe Eschrick and EHDD. I'm aware of them. So I applied for that job. And they hired me on a temporary basis uh, for three weeks to build a model. But the wonderful part of it was that the model they wanted me to build was for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And so that was actually the first project I ever worked on um, Mm. out of school. And I spent three weeks and built a model out of cardboard and um, other materials. And you could take it apart, and they ended up using it for exhibit design for the aquarium. And after I built that after three weeks, they kept me on, uh, and I became sort of a first-year intern at EHDD. My nickname was The Rookie. And I spent about a year working on that project. And so right out of the gate, I was so lucky uh, to work on that job. I did the floor plans, the sections. I did the details for the otter tank and the shark tank. And it was just a wonderful experience, an amazing firm. And that was my first job experience. And again, it was my good fortune. So 
something I probably didn't deserve, but I happened to have that opportunity because I got out of school a quarter early. Well, it sounds like you had some good mentors at that first opportunity. Oh, I absolutely did. And Chuck Davis, to this day, is one of my early mentors. And one of the things I learned from Chuck uh, as a leader, he was very talented, very knowledgeable, but great with clients and frankly, a fun guy to be around. And also, I watched him navigate construction sites and build relationships with contractors and subcontractors. And he was really, really well-liked. And I, I saw how he led as sort of a real collaborative leader, not a command and control leader, but someone who became friends with his partners, his colleagues, his clients, and even the builders. And I learned so much from him. And I keep in touch with him to this day, but he was, he was right out of the gate, sort of an early mentor of mine, for sure. So what was next? Well, then... You know, as as again, fate turns out, I happened to be walking on the campus of UC Berkeley and ran into a friend of mine, a guy named Jim Goring, who again remains a, a wonderful friend to this day. And when we were at Berkeley, we both took a computer class and actually we were both pretty good at it. We really enjoyed programming. We enjoyed computer graphics. And and again, this was 1978, 1979. This is before even AutoCAD was invented. And I happened to run into him on campus, and he told me he was working with the computer group at SOM in San Francisco. He said, hey, by the way, I'm going to graduate school. You should apply for my job because I'm going to be leaving SOM to go to graduate school. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I did. I applied for the job. And actually, uh, the funny part of it was I didn't get the job. I came in second. But the guy who their first choice was also went to graduate school. So I slipped in. And I got that job at SOM. And so that was my first job in the profession where I really was focused on computer technology. I did programming there. Uh, at the time, SOM uh, homebrewed their own drafting and 3D software. It was called Draft. And so I also was a user of that. It's funny, back in those days, SOM had 275 people in their San Francisco office and one CAD user, and that was me. But that wow. was really the beginning of something that I've kept throughout my career, which is a real passion and interest in design technology and uh, watching all the iterations and participating in all that has been a real fun experience. So once you had that experience where you were kind of the technology outlier, um, you know, at SOM, what happened next? Well, then um, I fell in love and got married and <laughs> we, my wife and I, uh, moved back to Southern California, where our kids were born. I joined a wonderful regional firm there, LPA, who I stay in touch with to this day. And then after about five years there, I was recruited by ZGF up in Portland to be their sort of firm-wide technology leader. And I thought Portland would be a great place to raise our kids. So I took that job, and I, I spent almost a decade at ZGF. And of course, during all that time, technology became much more mainstream through AutoCAD, and ultimately after ZGF uh, with Revit and so forth. Then in 2001, Gensler came calling, and they gave me a call. And I had met Ed Friedrichs, who at the time was the CEO, through a couple of conferences, and he invited me to come in. And they invited me to join Gensler as their CIO, which I did uh, right in the beginning of 2002. That was a real tough decision. ZGF's an amazing firm. I still have so many friends there. They, they do incredible work to this day. But I felt that, you know, working for a firm that had a global presence and had offices in Asia and the Middle East and, and Europe, I felt, man, I, I really wanted to be part of that 
environment, and I did. And I had a wonderful 17 years there until I retired uh, back in at the end of 2018. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that's quite an impressive resume that you were building. While you were at ZGF and at Gensler, were you primarily working on building the capability of the firm uh, as far as its technologies goes, or were you actually working on projects of different kinds? Great question. I, I did both. And actually at both firms, in fact, I'll say going back to LPA and ZGF and Gensler, although I did and all three firms have sort of a firm-wide responsibility in terms of technology, strategy, implementation. As an architect, I always wanted to stay close to the work and do work for clients. So uh, in all of those firms, I continue to do that. Now, clearly, it was a minority of my time, maybe 15 to 20%. But I felt I always wanted to stay close to the real world of practice and actually doing work and servicing clients. So so that was important to me. I never wanted to be sort of full-time administrative or full-time overhead. And what kind of projects were you working on for clients? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, at ZGF, um, I worked on projects such as the Dornbecker Children's Hospital in Portland. I worked on the California Science Center down in LA. Wonderful, wonderful projects at Gensler. They ranged from Shanghai Tower to MGM City Center in Las Vegas to a 3D printed office building of the future. Uh, which actually got built in Abu Dhabi. That's actually the smallest project I ever worked on in all the five firms I worked for. It's about 2,500 square feet. So yeah, and and I tended to lean into projects that I hadn't done before or the firm hadn't done before that really required me to stretch or required the team or the firm to stretch. Those are the ones that I tended to lean into with the most excitement. So since you retired from Gensler, though, you've continued to remain active and you've got uh, board positions and you've written a book and tell us more about some of the things you've done. Yeah. So it's, it's been wonderful. And, you know, I, I, um, I still have so many friends at Gensler and we, we keep in touch all the time, but I'm also really enjoying the last five years where you're right. In fact, I, you know, joined design intelligence as a consultant, as part of the consultant advisory services. I'm one of the instructors in the leadership Institute, which I really, really enjoy. And also, I had the opportunity to join a few boards. Um, the, the two boards I'm serving on right now are Nelson. Nelson is a architecture and engineering interior design firm based out of Minneapolis, but they have a number of offices around the country. So I serve on their board, and I've been on that board for about four years. And then last year, I joined the board of DIRT. That's D-I-R-T-T. Some of your listeners may have heard about DIRT. Uh, you know, we're in the business of industrialized construction. So we construct and ship to sites prefabricated, flexible, adaptable interior environments, uh, which A, is sort of a way for clients who deploy our systems to deal with an uncertain future. Because who really knows what the workplace in three, five, or 10 years is going to look like? So when you deploy systems that can be reconfigured, that can be moved around, that are portable, that are designed to function in that way, you're purchasing a lot of flexibility for the long run. You know, one of the things I like to say is in order to prepare for the future, you don't have to predict it. Uh, and again, I think we, we have a lot of fun figuring out the kinds of systems that we want to offer to architects and designers, to contractors, to clients to let them do that. So I've been serving on their board for about the last 14 months. And just having a blast. And again, not only do we 
uh, invest in technology and we have a direct sales force, but we run factories. We have a factory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, as well as in Savannah, Georgia. And that's been really, really fun to work with and help lead a truly integrated organization that whose services and products span from napkin sketches all the way to the finished installation. So we're living in very interesting times, especially related to workplace. Uh, you know, I read in the Financial Times the other week that it's estimated that about $1.5 trillion in commercial real estate loans are coming due in the next three years. And there are some buildings in your hometown of San Francisco that have traded down as low as 75% off their pre-COVID levels, and in New York, about 30%. So it seems like there's a lot of uh, confusion. There's a lot of uh, people trying to figure out what's shaking out in the commercial real estate and workplace setting. I'm not asking you to make any predictions, but what are some of the scenarios that architects, engineers, and designers need to be prepared for as we work through this uh, this debt situation with commercial real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, you know, back to San Francisco, not only are real estate values down, but in a couple of conspicuous cases, real estate owners have simply handed the keys back to the bank. They've given the asset back to the lender. There's a, the largest mall in San Francisco, the Westfield Mall, was surrendered back to the lender. Also, there's a large hotel that also was given back to the bank. Now, there are assets out there. And first of all, I'd like to say, you know, look, the, especially in the U.S., we've been spoiled for 20 years with very, very low interest rates. And so the cost of capital was very, very small. Now, that was great if you're an investor in real estate or an investor in any kind of business because you have access to capital with, with a very low carrying costs. And, and for those investors in real estate who have fixed mortgages or fixed loans, that's okay. The problem is when those loans are either of short-term duration, like maybe five or seven years, and they come up due and you have to refinance them, or even worse, if loans are financed um, on an adjustable rate basis. And so what we've seen with all the government spending and investment through COVID, that predictably, you know, uh, inflation shot up as a strategy for managing inflation the fed has raised interest rates at a faster rate than than in our lifetimes and as a result you're right there's a lot of real estate assets that are that are being stressed and so what happens is if there was a real estate investment where somebody financed it five years ago and maybe they got a two and a half percent loan and it all penciled out and now they suddenly have to go to market refinance that they ain't getting that you're going to get something much much more expensive and suddenly you know, their returns are challenged, or in some cases, like I mentioned, you have owners who say this doesn't work anymore. We can't carry this asset and it's going to be too long for us. We don't want to incur the losses. And so bank, here are the keys. So we're going to see more of that in the next couple of years. I think, you know, everybody likes to guess about how long high interest rates are going to last. I think they're going to last longer than people think. I think that's a strategy that the Fed is going to continue to try to keep inflation tamped down. And so in as much as anybody, whether you're a homeowner or a commercial real estate owner, has a short duration loan or an adjustable interest rate loan, that's a real problem. Now, having said that, that creates opportunity for others. Every time a distressed asset comes to the market, someone will end up probably buying that mall for a pretty good price or buying that hotel for a pretty good price. And they will reinvest and they'll 
do what they do. So we've seen these cycles before. I think this one happened very, very quickly because of the dramatic rise in interest rates. It's not going to go away soon. And But in, in some respects, it's part of the natural ebb and flow and the breathing in and out of markets that I've seen four or five times in my lifetime. But this this one certainly feels more dramatic. So I want to key in on one word you used, which is opportunity. So whenever there's this level of change, I think you were saying that there's some kind of opportunity. What do you think the opportunity is that's embedded in the changes that are coming our way? Well, I'll tell you a story about my friends at Gensler. Um, when I was at Gensler, most of our people in the Bay Area were in, in downtown San Francisco, which back in the day was a fairly pricey place to lease office space, but that's where the talent was. And, and Gensler still to this day has a wonderful office in San Francisco. While I was there, we moved our San Ramon office to Oakland, to downtown Oakland, which is just across the bay. And Oakland has always been sort of in the shadow of San Francisco. It's close by, but it's it's less expensive in terms of real estate costs, lease costs, and so forth. And you know, while I was there, one of the things we we did is that the, the lease cost on a per capita basis in Oakland was about half of what we were paying in San Francisco. And when we looked under the hood, we realized that a lot of our corporate staff at Gensler actually lived in the East Bay, lived in Oakland. So we made a deliberate decision to move probably 50 people from San Francisco over to Oakland. Our, our people loved it because their commutes were shortened. Our lease costs went down. It was a win-win for everybody. But I tell that story to point out the current situation. Gensler recently signed a new lease to move their San Francisco office from 45 Fremont to a historic building on Montgomery Street. And here's the punchline. Gensler will now, in the fall, when they move into the San Francisco office, be paying a lower lease rate in downtown San Francisco than they are in downtown Oakland. Wow. And I don't know that we've ever seen that before. Now, clearly, once their Oakland lease comes up, they may also find themselves in a really attractive leasing environment. So what does that have to do with opportunity? Well, what I've been telling many of my colleagues at the companies I work with is that if you're a real estate owner, it's a real tough environment. If you're a real estate tenant, this is a wonderful time because rents are going down, lease costs are going down. You may find yourself in a position to upgrade your office, upgrade your location, get a good deal with the landlord, get a lot of TI improvement commitments and so forth. So so again, uh, there's always a buyer and seller. And so if you are, are a real estate tenant like Gensler is, renew, you know, moving their office, this is a great time. So also, in as much as the uncertainty and the dramatic economic change in commercial real estate creates that opportunity for people to move, guess what? That creates opportunity for people who are doing interior design work because it's a new office, new design, et cetera, et cetera. So we may find out that it's going to create a lot of churn in the commercial real estate market. You'll also see repositioning of building assets. You'll see some office buildings, class B office buildings turned into hotels, turned into housing. So those firms who have expertise in changing a building from one type to another, there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. So, so frankly, you know, when change happens, even though it can be a little bit scary, even though there's going to be some people who are confronting some serious challenging business uh, situations. On the flip side, it creates opportunities for others. 
Um, so that's sort of how I look, I look at it. So for if you're in the interior design business, that was just an awful thing to live through COVID. But where we are right now, actually, there might be a lot of new kinds of opportunity that didn't exist just a couple of years ago. Well, it isn't like it's going to go back to what it was, though, in the sense that a lot has changed around the culture of work, right? I mean, I talked to heads of firms who might have a three days in the office, two days work from anywhere policy, and they are having challenges getting people to even come in those three days. Uh, it seems like a lot, a lot is shifting that would also either, I don't know if it creates opportunity, but it certainly creates a different dynamic for those who are creating and designing workplace environments in the future. What are you seeing in that realm? Well, a couple of thoughts. I think the, the, the first is that almost every prediction from anyone about how we were going to emerge from the pandemic and the pace of back to work and how long it was, it was going to take has been wrong. I think the, the back to work has taken a lot longer than uh, people originally thought. I think this year you're starting to see a surge of companies who are saying, okay, wait a second, we really do need our people back in a physical location. You know, where it lands uh, long-term is still uncertain. My view is it's probably going to land in the 60 to 80% range. I think, you know, in as much as there's still a competitive environment for attracting talent, companies are, are going to have to continue to provide flexibility today that they didn't five years ago in terms of allowing people to work remotely or work from home. So we'll see how that all settles out. I think in the meantime, what it means for the workplace is again sort of relates back to my story about dirt you have to design your workplace for an uncertain future you have to design it in a way that's flexible that's adaptable that will accommodate changes of use changes of modes whether it's focus work or collaborative work or learning or socialization uh, all these classic work modes the mix and balance of those will continue to probably shift over time i think also i think what we have learned is to attract people to come into the office today rather than working at home means a richer mix of amenities, for example, uh, to pull people in the office. And frankly, if you're going to come into the office, why do you come in? You're not going to come into the office to sit at your desk all day and work. You might as well do that at home. You're going to come into the office to collaborate, to meet with people, to interact, both in formal and informal settings. So you're seeing a different blend of work modes. Uh, in environments being designed today. But I would say the most important thing is whatever you deploy, knowing that your lease is going to be five, seven, or 10 years, and we don't really know how it's going to play out, that you better make your workplace really flexible so that if you need to shift things around in a year or two, you can do that without spending uh, a whole lot of money. So Ken, a lot of folks that I talk to in architecture and design talk about things like amenities, talk about things like the way that a new way of working together, co-located, is going to drive changes in design. And they're talking a lot about, you know, what is it that's going to bring people back together into the workplace? And one of the things I wonder about, and you'll have a, a perspective on this because of your many years in leadership in firms, is the role of culture in bringing people back together or being the kind of draw that brings workers back to work together. Yep. No, that's a great question. And look, I, I think we can agree that that cultural transmission happens best in person when you are together in a physical environment. And again, 
because it accommodates both the formal interaction that we all have in design firms where you have meetings or you're talking about a project, you're doing a pinup on the wall. Those are structured and interactive. But but even then, they, they can be richer when they're in person rather than Hollywood squares on the screen. But there's also all that informal interaction that happens when you run into somebody, when you're getting your lunch out of the fridge or you're getting into an elevator. All these casual interactions, which are hard to replicate when you are solely online. So I think cultural transmission generally happens more naturally, organically in person. But having said that, I'll say there's no one size fits all. You know, there's people that I have worked with for years and years and years that I'm 100% comfortable working with totally remotely because I know them and they know me and we speak in shorthand. On the other hand, if you're new to a firm, if you're starting your career, you know, my advice is really spend time in the office, build relationships, get to know people, not just professionally, but get to know them personally. And again, some of that can happen remotely, but a lot more of that can happen when you are spending time in person. So, you know, no one size fits all, but certainly from a standpoint of culture, I'm a strong believer that there's a premium in terms of having people uh, be together physically, not remotely. It's kind of an axiom that leaders have a an important role, a driving role in creating culture in their organizations. How is it that leaders need to adapt in this kind of hybrid, sometimes in person, sometimes virtual environment to build culture and you know lead their people? Well, they need to be brave to break old habits. You know, the precedent for this, which which I heard about for years and was an issue that I dealt with at multiple companies, is you had senior practitioners who said, you know what? I don't like this CAD and I don't like this Revit world because everything's in the box. And, and you know, when I was practicing, we had drawings out and we had drawings on. I could walk by, walk around and see what's going on. Now it's trapped in the box. And they were pining for the days where they wouldn't have to change their behavior and somebody else did. But, but you work through that because over time, you can strike a balance. You still love to do a pinup. You still want to have drawings out. You want to have models out in the office. But guess what? These leaders still can learn some skills to look inside the digital box and see what's going on and watch the work going on. And once they do that and become comfortable with it, it's no longer an issue. I think the same thing is now where we've all gotten clearly much more used to working virtually through COVID. We were sort of forced to. So I think even the um, the most reluctant practitioner certainly is more comfortable with that today than they were three years ago. It doesn't mean to say they fully embrace it, but they're probably less afraid of it. So I think it's re- it's really striking a balance, but you have to be willing to be self-aware and ask yourself, wait a second, how much is about this about me and my unwillingness to change? And how much of this is about what's the right thing for the firm, for the project team, for my people, for my client, and make sure that's in right balance. So I, I think, again, all of us, and I, I'm just, I've always been a lifelong believer in, in learning forever, learning never ends. So I'm always curious about trying new things, learning new things. So it's not been a problem for me, but I do recognize that as practitioners, it's tough for them to break old habits, but they need to think about that and reflect on that. And leaders need to be able to inspire them to do that, right? Yeah. And they, and they need to be role models and they need to demonstrate it. And I also think, again, it's about balance because as much as even what I said about 
cultural transmission and being in the office, we have to realize now there's a lot of economic realities that practitioners, especially young practitioners, face. For example, in San Francisco, it's it's great that a lot of architects are in San Francisco. That's a very expensive place to live. And so young practitioners, especially those who are starting families, it's in most cases not possible. They're going to live somewhere else. They may have very, very long commutes. So you have to take that into account. And you can't just say, well, when I worked, I came in 45 hours a week. You got to set that aside and you got to be compassionate and empathetic about the lives of the people that you're leading and making sure that you're balancing those along with what you think is ideal for the team or for the firm. So you wrote a book called Voices of Design Leadership, and you interviewed leaders from places like Gensler, where you used to work, from HKS and Kieran Timberlake, Mass Design Group, Google, Pelly Clark and Partners, a lot of really prominent firms. What did you learn that you hadn't already necessarily experienced from going around and asking leaders in these architecture firms about how they did what they do? Great question. Let, let me start, let me explain sort of my motivation for, you know, why did I write that book? And and it goes back to my days at Gensler, where one of the most rewarding experiences I had was co-leading uh, classes of Gensler University, which is a program that continues to this day. And it's really Gensler's accelerated leadership development program. And so I, along with other partners, were tasked uh, several times to facilitate these classes. And I say classes, but really it was a year and a half long process. We usually identified 15 to 20 emerging leaders, and we really wanted to help them accelerate uh, from the standpoint of leadership development. And that included workshops, office visits, virtual meetings. Uh, We invited outside speakers to come in. And, you know, what I was really proud about in helping facilitate those, many of the graduates to this day are leading Gensler offices, or if they left Gensler, they're leading their own firms. And I really, really enjoyed that. I just, I, um, I so much enjoyed helping other people, you know, find their own authentic voice and chart their own journey and find their passions and become leaders of whatever they wanted to lead. And so, you know, in, th- in this phase of my career where I have a lot more flexibility, I thought, man, maybe there's something I can do to help continue that in a book form. I think the other thing that motivated me is that, you know, here in the U.S., and we're continuing to make progress, but, you know, we're finally confronting the lingering discrimination in our society, frankly, across the world, and our responsibility to address it. One of the things I did out of curiosity when I was thinking about writing this book is I went back to the last 10 uh, AIA firm award winners, and I think it was from 2011 to 2020. So I took those 10 years and I looked at those 10 firms and I you know, figured out who won the award and I researched them and I looked at all the principles. In other words, who owns those firms to this day? And at the time I started working on the book, over two thirds of the principles leading those 10 award winning firms designated by the AIA as the best firms in the business were white men. And nothing against white men. I'm a white man. But I really felt it was important. And this is so much of this conversation at Gensler about, you know, as you build a firm, you want to build a firm that reflects the mosaic of the world, of society, of your clients. And to me, it's more important than ever that we showcase 
and learn from design leaders who look like the world, who have lots of different life experiences, who come from different cultures, who bring different perspectives to their work. So so that was sort of my motivation. But when you ask me what I learned, maybe I can say what it reinforces me in me. And it reminded me that there's absolutely no one size fits all. You know, I interviewed these 16 leaders and everyone had a completely different journey, had a different experience. You know, some were first generation immigrants. Nine of the 16 are women. So it was really interesting to hear uh, the stories from women about their leadership journey and their experience many people of color. So I, I I just really enjoyed learning from all of them because every story was different. The stories they told were different. And the thing that reminded me that anyone who wants to be a leader in a design firm, don't think that there's any handbook or book out there that says, here's the magic 12 things you got to do to achieve success. I think you want to borrow ideas from all kinds of places but you build your own mosaic and, and you, you find your own passions and you borrow what makes sense for you to do what you love. And if you do that, your journey will be unique and it won't be like anybody else's. And I think that's the whole opportunity. And frankly, what's fun about not only this industry, but fun about leadership development is helping people find their own unique journey. So that was sort of a long answer, but that was both my motivation for writing the book and it sort of reinforced that idea uh, that there is no one size fits all in terms of becoming a design leader. Well, that's a fantastic insight. And it could be the subject of an entire podcast episode to itself. Uh, but unfortunately, we need to wrap up this conversation. So, Ken, I just want to thank you for sharing your story with us and your perspective on what's happening in workplace and how that translates into culture and leadership in uh, architecture, engineering, and other sorts of firms. Well, Bob, thank you so much for the invitation. I enjoyed the dialogue and happy to do it again sometime. Thank you. So anyone who's interested in uh, Ken's book, it's called Voices of Design Leadership. It's published by Wiley and it's available wherever books are sold. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.